It was one of those old houses you see from time to time, standing off the road, across the field, out toward the country, the roof mostly gone, windows sagging and empty, peering at you over a half-rotted porch as you drive by. It's hard to believe that anyone had ever lived there, but according to my great-grandfather, it was the house he was born in. His excitement grew as we pulled onto the bare dirt track that led to the house. The car was still rolling when out he popped and was moving as fast as his cane would let him up the stairs and through the black hole that served as a door. Following as fast as we could, we too crossed the threshold and came to a sudden and abrupt halt, like hitting an unseen wall. In the gray light filtering through the dust, we could see the back of an old wingback chair, grimy and tattered, facing toward the fireplace on the far wall of the room. There was no sign of great-granddad. Try as we might, we could not move forward. A voice seemed to come from the depths of the wingback chair. Don't worry, you'll have him back safe and sound. But first, you must listen to my weird wonder stories from a time long ago. When I'm done, just step back and leave. Great-grandfather will be found sleeping in the car. And we did. Here is a story about keeping loved ones close. The Parlor Cemetery by C. E. Howard Good morning. I'm getting the information for the new city directory. May I step in and rest a moment while I'm asking you a few questions? Well, yes, I reckon you can come in and sit, conceded the old lady who had answered my knock. But I won't give you no order, mister. I ain't much of a booker. Oh, I don't sell books, I hastened to reassure her, as I laid my sample volume on the floor by my chair and placed my hat on it. I just go round from house to house, gathering the names for it. The company publishes and sells the book. I don't have anything to do with that part of it. Oh, you just do the authoring. It must take you considerable time to write as big a book as that. Do you do it all alone? No, we have 54 men working on it now, and it will take about two months to get it all. Now may I ask, well, how much does it cost? This year they sell for $15. A pace, she shrilled. My land of living. Whoever buys the things. All the big stores keep them, especially the drug stores, for the benefit of the public, you know. Now your name is... Well, what's it all about anyway, she insisted. And what's it for? Is it a telephone dictionary? Something like that. It contains the names and addresses of everybody living in the city. And all the big establishments keep one so that if anyone wishes to find out where anyone else lives, they just go in some store and look in this directory. And there it is. Now, will you give me your name for the new book, please? My name? Why, my name is... Now, is this going to cost me anything? You know I said I weren't going to take none before I let you in. It will not cost you a cent, I told her earnestly. And it may do you some good. See? Running through the leaves of the book in which I had entered the statistics, how many people I have interviewed this morning, and all of them gave me the information I asked for. Now you will see all there is to it. 
right down here on this top line, I write your name. What did you say it was? Well, I never said yet, but it was Cook. Ah, we're off at last. Cook. I paused at the K and asked, Do you spell it the short way or with an E? Which? How do you spell it? C-double-O-K or C-double-O-K-E? No, not with no E onto it. That would be cookie. It's just plain cook. C-O-O-K. I was willing to let it go at that and wrote it down. And your first name now? My first name? I don't tell my first name to no strangers, especially men. I beg your pardon, but I'm not asking that from impertinence, Mrs. Cook, I explained carefully. We do not mean to pry into the people's personal affairs. Such things are of no concern to us. But you see, there are probably a hundred or more cooks in this city, and if we didn't have their first names, there would be no telling them apart. All the ladies so far have told me their first names, I declared, holding my book toward her with the evidence. After peering at it intently for some time, she relaxed in her chair, reassured. Well, tain't no name be shamed of. If tis old-fashioned, it's Anne. Anne. A-N-N. I spelled aloud to give her the chance to correct me if necessary. Thinking of the famous query connected with that name, and thankful I didn't have to ask her that, too, I continued. You have a husband? No, not now. I've had him, though. Ah, a widow, then. That is, I presume your husband is not alive, Mrs. Cook? I essayed gently, avoiding, as always, the direct interrogation as to grass widowship. No, they all of them dead now. But, mister, my name ain't Cook. It's Hay. What? I exclaimed. Why, I understood you to say it was Cook. Well, you understood right. It was Cook. That's what you asked me, what it was. But it's Hay now. About two years after Cook went up in smoke, I married a feller named Hay, see? Oh, yes, I smiled cheerfully, and reversing my pencil, I endeavored to rub off the former husband's name. Of course, the flimsy paper tore. I yanked out the sheet and began again. H-A-Y. Hay. I put down writing lightly with an eye to more erasures or corrections. Just the plain short hay, I presume. Yes, just the plain hay. Not Timothy nor Alfalfi or none of them fancy horse breakfast foods. My land, she broke out in astonishment. I should think the company get men to do this work that could spell. That is one of the things we are told to be most careful about, Mrs. Uh, hay. We must always ask everybody's name and just how they spell it, even if we think we know. Often people having the same sounding name spell it differently. And if it goes in the directory wrong, they generally blame us. And now may I ask, I said sympathetically, recalling the peculiar way in which she had spoken of the late Mr. Cook's decease, did your former husband lose his life in a fire? Who, Cook? Oh, you mean what I mean when I spoke of him going up in smoke. No, he's plumb dead. I satisfied of that before he was burned. That's the way I had them all done. Kind of a habit I got into, I reckon. But seems to me it was a pretty good habit. That's Cook, second from the right-hand end, she said calmly, pointing to an object on the humble mantel. 
as though she was indicating a specimen in a museum. How? What? I gasped as every hair on my head rose and tried to spring from its root cell. Why, I had all my husband's bodies consumed by fire. What do you call it? Cremated. For when they up and left me, and that's their ashes of all them up there in the dishes there. Seems to me that's the best way to do it with dead folk. Have your own cemetery right in your house where it's handy. It's especially nice when one moves around a good deal like I've done. I never could afford it to go on visiting here and there, that many graves scattered about in different states. Besides, it saves tombstones and the expense of taking care of the lots. Gradually, I grasped the woman's meaning as she continued to rock back and forth and utter her placid Mrs. Jarley explanation. The men who had been so unfeelingly abrupt as to up and leave, this poor creature had evidently each in his turn been cremated and now their ashes, side by side, served to adorn the mantle and comfort the heart of the faithful widow. Imperial Caesar, dead and turned to clay. I gazed at the row of assorted receptacles with awe, and back at the woman with feelings still more curious. Some folks thinks them kind of out of coffins, she continued, but I don't know what could be more appropriate. You see, I tried to have each one sort of represent either the man himself or his trade. Now, for instance, this one here, she explained and rising, placing her hand on a small stone jar at the left end of the line. There were five of these unique memorials altogether. This was my first husband, John Marmaduke. The label on the crock, you'll notice, is Marmalade, and that's pert near his name. And then it comes almost describes his disposition, too. The grocer told me that marmalade was a kind of English jam and John was kind of sweet-tempered for a man. So I thought one of them stone things would do fine to keep him in. This is William Thompson here, she continued, tapping a small tea caddy with her thimble. He was a teacher, and I always called him Mr. Tay. So when he departed, I thinks to myself, thinks I, one of them little chests the Chinese men pack tea in is just the ticket for you. Tea, standing for both his name and his calling, do you see? I expressed my admiration for this delightful idea, and she proceeded with her cataloging. This third collection, in the fruit jar, is Mason. That was his name and his trade, and he belonged to that lodge. And that's the make of the jar. So considering all them facts, I don't know what could be a fitter tomb for him. Mason fell off a roof one day and broke his back. And though he lived six months somehow, he was never much count after that. He was a big man, weighed 225 for breakfast. And he made such a pile of ashes, spite their keeping him in the oven double time, that it took a gallon jar to hold his leavings. I had some quart jars on hand already and expected to put him in one of them. But I never begrudged buying a bigger one, for he was always, or pert near always, generous with me. And then I knew I was saving an undertaker's bill anyhow. Now, I wasn't altogether satisfied with the coffin I finally chose for Cook, she said, looking at me doubtfully, as she motioned toward the small Japan tin bread box that was the next mortuary souvenir on the shelf. I worried over the matter the whole time he was sick, but I never got a mite of help from him. Every time I tried to get that man to suggest what he thought he'd rest comfortable in, he'd go on frightful. Doctor said his temper probably shortened his life. 
Well, at last I decided on the bread boxes, coming as near to representing him as anything I could think on. His name being and him having occupied as a baker as long as he was alive. What's your opinion about it, mister? I declared that if Mr. Cook did not now rest in peace and content, he was certainly a hard man to please. The last one there, as I told you, she went on with something like animation, is Mr. Hay, and I do feel considerable proud over his casket. It sure was a happy thought o' mine, see? She took down the object and held it to the sunlight where I could get a plainer view. He died just last year. Mr. Hay's ashes reposed in one of the large square glass perfume bottles, such as most druggists carry, and the ornate label thereon had become the painfully true epithet, New Moan Hay. When I could trust my voice, I inquired, Was he ill long? No, he weren't ill tall. He left me unexpectedly. However, he always was a great man for doing things on the impulse of the moment. We was living out on a farm then, and one day Mr. Hay was cutting grass in orchard, and I suppose he must have struck a nest of bees. Anyhow, something started the team, and they ran away and throwed him off in front of the knives, and the horses stepped on him a few times, and the machine finished it up. He certainly was most completely dead when we reached him. Hired man told me he had to gather him up with a rake and a wheelbarrow. Only 46 years old, too, he was, mowed down in his prime. Well, this is a funny world, ain't it? Some women can take one man and keep him alive for 50 or 60 years. But I sure had bad luck with my batch of husbands. It's a comfort to me, though, that I can have them with me in death, at least. I take down their monuments every morning and dust them off. And whenever I go on the curves visiting anywhere, I pack one of them in my valise and carry it along. Then when I get it out and put it up in my room, wherever I be, I feel right to home. I succeeded in getting answers to the rest of my questions in another half hour, and I went on my way, dazed. And though when my day's work was over, I had no rarebit for supper, yet a vision came to me sometime between the dark and the daylight. I thought I saw myself fall ill and die, and my body was prepared for cremation. I struggled to escape, to call out, but in vain. They slid me into a kiln, and the inextorable heat dissolved flesh, blood, and bone. Then some brutal, careless wretch came and swept me up on a dustpan, put me in a sack, and delivered me over to an eager old woman, whose face seemed strangely familiar. This ghoulish woman bore me away to her home and went to work trying to pack me down in a catsup bottle. It was too small. It seemed to press on my throat. I was choking. I struggled. I shrieked! And I woke to find, thank heavens, that a large crayon portrait above my bed had fallen down and was now around my neck. And the man in the next room was hammering on the wall with his shoe and shouting and swearing at me. The End And on the way home, we heard great-grandfather mumbling in his sleep. Such marvelous stories, he said. Such marvelous stories. I haven't heard these since I was a child. And he promptly fell back asleep.